Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Matthew Weatherly White. The principal architect of Caprock's impact investing platform and the creator of the now independent impact reporting platform IPAR, Matthew is a sought after speaker and pioneering thought leader in the discipline. In addition to keynoting conferences and lecturing at leading business schools around the world, he serves as a strategic advisor to several impact investing funds and has appeared in many media outlets such as Barron's, Yahoo Finance TV, and Bloomberg Business Week. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. I'm delighted to have you here. It's wonderful to be here, Ursula. So your business, Caprock, is a a privately owned multifamily office. So for those who are not in the investment world, can you tell us what that means and and what the implications of that are? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're wealth advisors. So think of us similarly to a lot of the firms that you might have heard of, like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Um, The big difference is that we're independent, so we don't have... Um, an investment bank attached to our work. Um, And the services we provide are the same kinds of services that some of the really big single family offices you might have heard of, like the Rockefellers have an office and the Gates family have an office and, you know, and um, those offices are all designed to support one family. We do the same thing, but for more than one family, hence the somewhat awkward title multi-family office. But we're basically, we're, we're wealth advisors for families and foundations. Okay. And there's different aspects of that. There's investments, taxes, estate uh, planning, all those, all those things go into it. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, fundamentally we focus on the investment side um, and we Mm -hmm. provide sort of tax advice and consulting. We're not, we're not tax experts, so we don't, we don't file any returns. Um, Similarly, we have a wealth of experience on estate planning. So we provide a lot of orientating, orienting conversations around estate planning, but we don't do the documents themselves. Hmm, okay. Well, uh, I found in an interview that uh, someone called you the philosopher king of impact investing, which I love that. And I, I wondered, how did, you, how did you achieve that lofty title? And why is it important to you to have social and environmental impact? I think I think the title might have been a little bit tongue in cheek at the time. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, the interviewer was. Um, I mean, I don't know if you listened to the to the podcast or not, but it went all over the place. Um, and I think that the breadth of the conversation surprised the interviewer, and I think that's why he landed on that, that notion of the philosopher king. But, but I think there's a sort of um, sort of parallel, but almost existentially separate concept, which is that you know, the, the capital markets have always been about investing for finance return. And there's this other thing called impact investing. And this other thing is, um, is sort of focused on harnessing the power of capitalism, but to do it in such a way that, that you can generate measurable, durable social and environmental value. And so there's a sort of philosophical shift where um, you look at capitalism and say, okay, capitalism 
isn't intrinsically good or bad. It's not evil or, 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 you know, or beneficial necessarily. It depends on sort of how it's used. And so rather than say capitalism equals um, evil, instead say capitalism is amoral. What do we think about optimizing capitalism for something more than financial return? And that philosophical inquiry, I think, was where that title came from. Um, <laughs> but for me, um, you know, impact is important for... Um, how to say this succinctly um capitalism always evolves hmm. and as an evolutionary animal it is continually internalizing and reflecting the aggregate knowledge base of our society and the cultural mores that prevail and i and i and i say that recognizing that there's a big leap between talking about investing in the stock market and, and this sort of philosophical reorientation of capitalism but we have to remember that it was not that long ago that colonialism was seen as a perfectly viable system of organizing international trade and that slavery was a entirely acceptable way to control costs at the point of production mm -hmm. or child labor was seen as an integra integral part of the overall manufacturing um, system in, in England. So I think, um, Every one of those practices, and I'll say something that might be perceived as like really, really um, problematic, but every one of those practices was actually very profitable. And so from a purely economic perspective, they were all viable. But every one of them, in addition to any number of other practices that have sort of been consigned to the dustbin of history, um, became unacceptable. They just became unacceptable. Not that they didn't work, but they became socially unacceptable. And as a result, we're internalized into the functioning of capitalism. And so to me, the challenge is really, and why it's so important is that, you know, as the science around climate change deepens and crystallizes, and as the, the, the cavernous, gaping difference between wealth and income inequality and opportunity inequality among you know, race and gender, et cetera, um, becomes more and more pervasive and more and more easily understood, becomes equally indefensible to continue to operate capitalism as if those don't exist. Hmm. And so for me, impact is the next evolution of, of capitalism because it begins to address these great challenges that we face. And in a way it begins, it, it allows us to internalize our you know, aggregate knowledge around climate change and social injustice and to begin to optimize or to, um, yeah, to reorient the end objective of capitalism to to include something more than purely financial return. <laughs> I guess the short saying is that you know Milton Friedman is not my hero, <laughs> <laughs> nor nor mine. So, well, I, 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 you do have a, a strong philosophical bent. I love that context for the work that you're doing, and and uh, I was really. Um, actually a little surprised by the stated mission of Caprock, which uh, when I read it was to build homes, relationships, and business that help regenerate communities and environments. I, I think that's a, a really laudable and lofty goal. Um, yeah, and it's, I think it's important to recognize that that's part of our mission. It's not, I mean, it's not the exclusive mission. I mean, fundamentally, we serve families, um, mm -hmm. And we believe that um, our principal responsibility is to ensure that our families, the families that entrust us with their money in their future, can live the lives that they want to live by depending upon the finance return of their investments. Like most of, most of our clients, not all of them, most of our clients have already sort of made 
their money or they've inherited it or they've you know, built a company and sold it or whatever. Um, and they've turned to us to protect their wealth and to sort of grow it responsibly. Um, and so the, the impact mission is, it's sort of nested into that sort of core, that core mission of the company, which is to serve our, the clients that entrust us with their, you know, their wealth and their futures. Um, mm -hmm. But what we've seen is that the impact conversation having started as a, as a, as a, as a, not quite tangential, but certainly a very small conversation internally with a very small number of, of clients has expanded to touch on almost everything that we do. So even though we do not consider ourselves an impact investing firm, we consider ourselves an investment firm mm -hmm. that has an interest in, and perhaps even an expertise in, is in, in investing for extra financial return, i.e. social or environmental performance um it's not it, we're, 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 that's not that's not our firm like our firm is an investment firm and we just happen to think that this is a really good way of using the skills and expertise that we've developed at caprock to explore this evolved form of capitalism and that's the part that is so interesting to me um because it's you know it's rare i think in this life that any one of us feels that we are um at a sort of exactly the right place at exactly the right time and I feel like that's where we are and that's certainly where I am you know having spent 14 years at Smith Barney and then what 12 years now 13 years here at, at Caprock um, I've got sort of 25 year investment career that brings a lot of credibility to this conversation and yet simultaneously I've been involved in the SRI slash ESG slash impact world since 1994 and so I have this like really interesting dual credibility that I don't think a lot of people have. And so when I talk to my peers and colleagues who are really focused on impact, I bring this capital markets perspective that a lot of them don't have. And conversely, when I'm talking to people in the capital markets, I bring this sort of awareness of socially responsible investing, environmental and social governance investing and impact investing that a lot of them don't have. And so it's, mm -hmm. the, it's just, it's sort of supremely gratifying and incredibly exciting to be here at this moment when so many of the really big pools of capital in the world are all looking at the challenges of climate change, the cl challenges of social justice, challenges of you know a, a world where um, autocracy seems to be on the rise and the notion of democracy seems to be um, being challenged and certainly the notion of capitalism seems to be challenged and to be an optimist for all of those effectively and having a, a sort of a fundamental perspective that supports optimism. It's just really different right now. I'm, I feel like I'm hijacking this conversation a little bit, but um, <laughs> it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's like a full contact sport for me where every single part of me is required to engage in this notion of evolving capitalism in the capital markets and business. Hmm. Well, I mean, you refer to this, but it's uh, in terms of the evolving nature of business. I mean, when you see players uh, uh, leading companies as huge as BlackRock, for example, Larry Fink saying that they will only invest in companies that that have social purpose included. I mean, it starts to hit the mainstream, and I I'm interested in the the way you see differences, if any, between ESG investing and impact investing, I mean, it, it, uh, I think of it as more of a continuum, yeah. but I'm interested in hearing what your views on the, the separation of that, because your company is not solely impact investment oriented. You, you have a broader kind of uh, 
portfolio or mandate, I guess. We do Is that broader, fair to say? Yeah, it's totally fair to say. We do have a broader mandate. Um, yeah, I, I think, and you're right, Ursula, the, the sort of the continuum from SRI all the way to impact is, um, it's very difficult sort of to, to pick a point on that continuum line and say, well, this is where ESG stops and impact starts. Um, and in, in fact, I don't, I don't really think, again, I think there's, you know, sort of very broadly socially responsible investing is about screening out the companies you don't want to own from a values perspective. So for example, some people might say, I don't want to own any oil. Other values-based investors might say, I definitely want to own oil so that I can vote proxies and try to lobby for corporate change, right? So mm. there's the values piece. Then there's ESG, which is sort of less about values, but it's about bringing um, sort of high IQ diligence around environmental sustainability or social and governance issues to make better investment decisions, which may or may not be values aligned, but certainly has um, a financial uh, a financial return component to the decision. And then impact investing is really about creating, you know, investing in businesses that intentionally create social and environmental value. And I think that you can be an ESG investor and end up not necessarily investing in companies that are intentionally creating that value. Whereas if you're an impact investor, that's really what you're focusing on. And that intentionality piece is super important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I know that um, something that you said um, in an article in Barron's, I think it was, was in terms of impact investing, you see this, this, trio of from the instinctively skeptical the reluctantly intrigued and the true believers and i the question really is uh, is it going to offer what people are looking for quickly enough in terms of market rate returns and and uh, can you speak to that and and the kind of range of people that you see in their relationship with with that style of investing yeah <laughs> i mean i think what what's most What's most fascinating to me about this um, this whole notion of impact investing is how if you were to take the the framework and extract it from the capital markets and apply it to say for example um, wildlife conservation or critical ecosystems preservation like nobody would question its validity. I've, I've yet to meet, even, even among the most hardened hedge fund capitalists on Wall Street, I have yet to meet any one of them who says they simply don't care about clean air or hmm. ocean's health. Not one. Hmm. And yet, when you try to integrate that perspective into their investment methodologies, it breaks down. And that... And that why is that... Why is that? Do you think it's, it's there's sort of a mental separation from work yeah. versus? Yeah. yeah, I mean it's a it's a cognitive bias. I mean I don't know if you've spent mm. much time looking at behavioral economics, but you know what, what Kahneman and Tversky proved with their research um, is that we have a, you know a set of cognitive biases that we bring to every decision that we make, and we're unaware of them. <laughs> hence, you know their, their biases, um, and those shape our perspective and our decisions, right? totally subconsciously. And I think that when, when somebody sort of enters into the capital markets as a participant, it's almost as if there is a, um, like a, a, a mental DNA replacement procedure that you undergo, where suddenly you're able to compartmentalize 
their day job effectively, let's go make a bunch of money with their morning and afternoon job, which might be to go for walks with their dogs in the woods or to take their child to the beach to go for a swim, right? Mm -hmm. And that compartmentalization, that, that bifurcation sort of allows them, and, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to say this as if it, if, if it were malicious, right? But it basically allows them to rest easily with the notion that how they make their money doesn't matter and that they can invest in companies that are effectively creating all the problems they might actually be trying to solve with their philanthropic activity. Like they might be making large donations to Woods Hole's Oceanographic Institute, which might be focused on figuring out ocean's health, ocean acidification, ocean warming, and ocean's plastics. And all the investments that they're making in their hedge fund might be contributing to those same problems. And that mm -hmm. cognitive breakdown um, is to me utterly fascinating. And I think that one of the, one of the great sort of healing moments that may or may not happen, and I really truly do hope, hope it's happening. And I think that Larry, you mentioned Larry Fink's letter. I mean, Larry Fink has, read, has written three letters, um, you know, one each year for the last three years, where in each letter, he's sort of making a progressively more authoritative case for the notion that businesses have to begin to present more than simply a financial return. And you know, his, his language, which you, which, you, which you quoted was, you know, if your business doesn't have a, a social mission, we're not going to support you. Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't say we're not going to invest in you, so we're not going to support you, which I think is a really interesting and very intentional word. And hmm. it's pretty ambiguous. Like, well, what does that mean? BlackRock's not going to support you. Does that mean they're going to vote against your directors at the next proxy war? Does it mean that they're not going to buy shares in your company? Well, that's a lot harder to do because they're a universal owner. You know, they're sitting on trillions of dollars. It's hard for them right. to simply not invest in something. But I think it's mm -hmm. fascinating that, you know, Larry Fink has – as each year sort of pushed it a little bit further and, and you sort of have to presume that the lawyers are scrubbing those letters like crazy, <laughs> right? right? And so for him to be comfortable enough in taking such a strong stand on an issue like having a social mission, that is antithetical to the way businesses have operated and have self-defined ever since Friedman, um, you know, said, which again, I don't agree with him, you know, the business of business is business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's intriguing seeing multinationals now buying up B Corps, for example, and, yeah. um, which, you know, you could argue there's a purpose washing element in there, or perhaps it's a way to make some commitment in that realm without uh, antagonizing maybe mainstream shareholders. I don't know, but it's an interesting realm. And, and Caprock itself is a founding B Corp. We so, are. What led you to choose that certification <laughs> in those early days and, and be involved in that sense? Oh, um, so I think I mentioned that I was sort of involved in the uh, SRI world um, in the 90s. And I went to the SRI and Rockies conference sort of once every sort of seven or eight years um, for a while. And, and, and I went to the one that was in Albuquerque. And in a little breakout session, sort of down a long, dimly lit hallway, <laughs> and it was thinly <laughs> attended. There was um, Andrew Kasoy and Jay Cohen Gilbert, two of the three founders of B Corp. And they were basically there to talk about this idea of codifying best practices in sustainable business management. And I didn't have anything to do in that particular moment. And I just sort of went into the, the session, just curious, I guess. And there's, I think, eight or 10 people in the room. Um, 
and my mind was just blown. Like here are these two guys, clearly entrepreneurs. Like these guys were businessmen. One of them was running Michael Dell's real estate portfolio and one of them had exited a shoe company. And he'd, he'd been a, a founder and a, um, yeah, of, of a shoe company that was sold. Um, and so you know, two very successful businessmen. And here these guys were not sort of members of the SRI tribe at all, but talking the language of sustainable business management. And it just rang like a bell in my head. And so I went up afterwards and talked to them and ended up taking Caprock through the, the, the beta version of the B assessment. And um, we passed, um, which was great. And I put my hand up and I volunteered for several of the early standards committees. So sort of talking through how to weight the the scoring algorithms, talking through like which factors were more important in which industries. And it was just this totally interesting dynamic conversation around, as I said, codifying best practices in sustainable business management. So you didn't ask this, but I think it's really cool part of the journey. So, um, you know, we passed without changing anything. I think we got 82 and you have to get 80 wow. pass. Um, yeah. And to me, that was like, wow, that's, yeah. that, that, that's proof that this works because I know my partners and they are wickedly smart, experienced businessmen who are not really interested in the values aligned part, but are really interested in building a durable, sustainable business. And they're very, very thoughtful people. And so I thought, well, you know, if you've got a group of fairly hard-nosed capitalists on one end who are just simply building a business, and then a group of, you know, fairly progressively-minded, sustainability-oriented business consultants, and they basically are thinking about things the same way, well, then we're in. Like, yes. Mm -hmm. So I went back to my partners. I was like, hey, guys, I think we should become a B Corp. (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh, wow. No way. Interesting. And... What resulted was a nine-month-long pride-swallowing siege. <laughs> wow! To convince my partners to become a founding B Corp. And what was their objection? It to was it? so fascinating because you know we talked. I'm going to be. I'm going to sort of step onto thin ice here for a moment and talk <laughs> about politics. But the pol- the politicization of the word sustainability mm. and the weaponization in the political realm of the environment mm-hmm. ca- gave, gave my partners cold feet. Mm. They were like, well, what happens if, if B-Lab starts lobbying government for mm-hmm. things like environmental regulations or gay marriage or abortion rights? Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what do those have anything to do with business management? But that tells you why these issues are so hard to resolve in our society because they've been politicized and weaponized. Mm -hmm. And my partners were basically afraid that if we became a B Corp, that some of our clients who might be oriented more on the, on the right end of the political spectrum would be offended and that we might Mm -hmm. lose business as a result of basically certifying that the practices that we were already doing were sustainable well it's an interesting dilemma because uh i think it's one that companies that are mission focused deal with all the time in terms of are you when where are you making decisions that are serving the mission that may negatively impact or i mean you don't even know at that point but have an impact on other parts of the business and you have to each time make a decision about what do we stand for 
Yeah, and, 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 that, and, and I, hate, I, I don't want to sort of bang on this drum too hard, but I want to make this super explicit. You know, the decisions that we had made when building our company mapped to the B assessment, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think that what gets lost in this conversation is that really, really good business decisions don't require a sacrifice. Like mm. We were just simply making good business decisions. And, you know, mm-hmm. one, one of my partners is a, was a private equity partner at a you know, private equity group doing a global consumer products a roll up strategy. One of my partners was a founding very, very early employee at eBay and is on the board of directors of several um, Silicon Valley venture funds. One of my partners is a third generation asset manager. One of them was a fortune 50 CFO for 17 years. Like these guys are like, they're not mission aligned people. They're business mm-hmm. people. And yet the decisions that we had already made mapped to how B lab thought about sustainable business management. Right. And I think that that's where it's like, that's where the tribe that's sort of the B Corp tribe, I think gets, a, <clears throat> God, again, I'm going to be a little bit provocative here. Gets a little yeah. bit self-righteous, mm-hmm. right? Where they're all, where they're all like, well, we're, you know, I was at um, a B Corp Champions retreat um, early on, and I remember as I was at a table, you know, where somebody had come up with this this sort of idea of having a bunch of tables break out and do little working groups, and 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 the topic was, um, if Walmart wanted to become a B Corp, would we let them? Right. Right. Yeah. And I was at a table of probably 10 people and nine said no. Wow. Again, this is, you know, several years ago. So they will have, would have to go through the, the B-Lab assessment and meet the criteria, get the minimum 80 score, and still the answer was no. Yes. Wow. And I was listening to this with sort of incredulity. I was like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> these guys want to go through the brain damage changing their entire corporation and their 140,000 vendor global supply chain mm-hmm. to become a certified B Corp. Not, not only, sh- not only should we quote, let them, which I think is the wrong phrasing to begin yeah. with. It's like, what do you mean? Yeah. No, nobody's policing this. It's like, right. we should be celebrating that in the same way that we are now celebrating Group Danon, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Group Danon acquired Happy Family, which was mm-hmm. one of the, I think it was the first B Corp that they acquired. And you know, we talk a lot about infecting the host with value, right? And that's a great <laughs> example of that, where B Corp, which was not, I mean, Happy Family, which was not a really, really deep mission-driven company, but, you know, was enough to become a B Corp, sort of folded into, into Group Danon. And then the conversations that resulted in that triggered the decision at the C-suite to get the entire company certified. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean. It's, it's like, that's been very difficult for them. I don't know if you've been tracking that, but it's, um, yeah. I think they're now like two thirds of the way through or something and they've been doing it for three years. Mm-hmm. It's a long process. Um, yeah. Anyway, I feel like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you, you, you definitely, you, you busted me in a self-righteous moment. I think you really captured something essential here that, if this is something that is a good business decision, then, I mean, why, why not include these companies? If it's something that they're doing with that in mind at the same time that it's aligning with those, uh, with that social and environmental commitment, why not? Yes. And I think the accusations of greenwashing are wildly misplaced. Mm. You cannot become certified as a B Corp and greenwash. It's impossible. 
the survey is too tight, too rigorous, the audit process is too legitimate, um, you, you can't do it. And so if anything, let me take a little bit of a step back. You know, the challenges that we face are huge, right? <laughs> Climate change, social justice, wealth and income and opportunity inequality. These challenges are massive. We cannot do it with um, small businesses. Mm -hmm. Small businesses are templatizing the solutions for sure. They are experimenting and scaling and growing and attracting customer base. But these are, all of them are pretty small businesses. I mean, Happy Family, which, you know, I was, was grateful enough to be an early investor in, um, you know, they sold to Group Danon for what was a fantastic exit, but it was a rounding error for Group Danon. <laughs> right? Right. right. So in order to solve these problems, by definition, we need big companies and big capital. Mm. And by big capital, I mean the big institutions. So now yeah. we've got the situation where the people who have been the, sort of the Promethean figures, many of the Promethean figures in impact investing are getting a little bit tribal. And they're starting to question whether or not the Goldman Sachs's and the TPG's and the KKR's are doing it right. And I actually agree with them. I think it's a totally legitimate question. But as a result of them appearing to not do it right, they want to set up the sort of exclusionary perspective. KKR can't do it because they're not true. They're not really impact investors. And oh, by the way, how can they say they're impact investors if they're also doing X? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, it's complicated. And I don't want to provide air cover for firms that are busy financing you know, hydrocarbon exploration. Right. And like we need them at the table. Like, yeah. period. There's, it's not if, it's we do. Mm -hmm. So the question yeah. to me is not, do we let them? It's like, how do we invite them in a way that inspires them? How do we embrace these big pools of capital and these big businesses in a way that inspires them to do better? Embrace and inspire. Well, and, and how do you even begin to have these conversations without an essential curiosity about, well, that's interesting. You know, why are you doing that? Why are you thinking of moving in this direction or why do you want to, uh, BB Corp certified. I mean, all of those curiosity-driven questions are a great basis for conversation. And how can you ever bring polar opposites? I mean, it's kind of a question for our times. How do you bring yeah. polar opposite views together if you're not even having a conversation? So yep. that curiosity serves that very well. And how do you destigmatize it so that people who might be in, in, in that second category instinctively curious, how do you create a space for them to step forward with their curiosity and engage in the conversation in a way that's not threatening. And mm -hmm. you know, I'm, on Thursday morning, I think it is. I mean, I'm 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 giving um I'm I'm doing a fireside chat with the corp with the CSO, Chief Sustainability Officer for a huge publicly traded company, for the National Association of Corporate Directors annual meeting, and we're talking mm -hmm. about ESG. And I'm supposed to be the guy talking about sort of impacting ESG from the investor perspective. And this guy's talking about it from the corporate perspective. We're going to try to bring those two perspectives together. And mm -hmm. yet on the pre-call, what was really, really clear is that nobody wanted to use the words sustainability. Nobody wanted to use the words ESG. And I'm like, well, then how are we going to talk about this? <laughs> right? I mean, this guy's title is chief sustainability officer. And they're like, yeah, but you know, the word sustainability, it's kind of polarizing. There will probably be people in the audience who, if you use that word, they have feel defensive or they'll feel threatened or, and it's like, well, to your point, like how do you even have the conversation when it's so polarized or so balkanized already? Yeah. And yet, you know, this is their annual meeting and this is the keynote conversation. 
Well, and what a great forum to do that if they can, if people can see you having this conversation in a civil way when views are maybe polar. Um, I think that that can be very enlightening for yeah. people. It can provoke a lot of interesting conversation and, and things get addressed that wouldn't otherwise, wouldn't otherwise come up in that environment if, if, uh, if, if things are avoided. I mean, uh, I know it's a, I know it's a tough position to be in, but um, I appreciate your perspective on wanting to have that conversation. I totally do. I mean, I, I about, two or three years ago, I, I said to myself, I'm not, I'm not going to go and talk to impact conferences anymore. It's just, you know, it's just an, an echo chamber. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to intentionally engage in the skeptical audiences. So, you know, this is one of them. I went to um, the Euro money conference, which is uh, sort of the biggest gathering of um, pension funds, endowments and sovereign wealth funds in the world. And they invited me several years ago to go. Um, it was in Amsterdam and, um, and talk about impact investing and, yeah, I think maybe five people showed up for my breakout session. <laughs> and <laughs> this and this last year I was there and they gave me the keynote address and the room was literally standing room only. Wow. There were people in the room. And, and I think that that shows you how far this conversation has changed. And I think that um, you know, at, at the top of this conversation I mentioned, I feel like I'm in like, the right place at the right time and I'm sort of a non-threatening voice to a lot of audiences. Um, and so I can have that conversation. I'm, I'm, I mean, I think you know, for, for me, the question is not, are they, do these conversations need to happen? They absolutely need to happen. Are they going to happen? They're absolutely going to happen. I think it's inevitable. The question is, is it going to happen fast enough? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, two years ago, I thought, yeah, we've got the solutions. It's just a question of engaging everybody. And then, you know, if you believe in the timelines that are being suggested by some of the climate scientists, you know, 12 years, yeah, that is terrifying i mean and, and, and again i'm not a scientist and and so I'm, I'm sort of partly inclined to be like well okay it's an alarmist timeline and if we're gonna have more time than that but if if it if it's right and when you look at what's happening in the arctic and it's like maybe 12 years is actually longer than we have I mean, that is absolutely paralyzingly terrifying mm-hmm. and in that case like do do i continue to take this you know somewhat collegial somewhat open conversational tactic or do I also start to get really strident and alienating and politicizing? Ah, I don't know. <laughs> really hard. Well, and, and there's room in there in between of being provoking, but, uh, you know, not, not being extreme. I mean, I, I, yeah, I understand the dilemma of how far do you push it? How far do you uh, consider and bow to the urgency of it? And, yeah. uh, and, and where, at what point, are you not meeting people where they are so that it just kind of brings the conversation to a complete halt? So, yeah. That's so interesting. You use that phrase. That That's the phrase that we use when we built our impact platform a decade ago mm. that we wanted to meet people where they are. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, at the time we, um, we made a decision and it was very strategic that we weren't going to proselytize about impact investing. We were just going to very quietly develop an expertise and basically offer it. Um, to people and the phrase that we use was meet them where they are right if somebody's a little bit curious they want to try it all right this will do if somebody's like all in they want to go 100 percent. all right we'll do that too um mm-hmm. but what we've discovered over the last decade or so is that a number of the investments that we have made for our self-identified impact investors have percolated through our entire client base hmm. simply because they're really good investments right 
And that is exactly the point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? That's yeah. the point. It's better investing. It's smarter money. It's more diligence. It's more environmentally sensitive. There's less headline risk. The governance is stronger. You know, it's all of those components which are embedded in ESG and impact investing. You know, set aside SRI for the moment because it's a little bit of a different framework. Like all those ideas that are embedded in impact investing manifest in making better investment decisions. So it's pretty cool to be in the middle of this. Super fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wish I, I'd love to keep talking about that topic and uh, I feel like we could go all day, but um, <laughs> I want, I wanted to explore a little bit about uh, your business and, and uh, your experience and journey with that. And one thing that really struck me is that Caprock has offices in the Western United States. So distant from Wall Street or even the usual major urban centers. And what do you think that does for your clients, your employees, and your impact? Uh, um, <laughs> this is going to be a, a sort of a very self-serving <laughs> reference, but you know, Warren Buffett <laughs> once said that he lives in Omaha because that's how he can maintain the independent thought. Ah. Um, and he said that, you know, he, he would never choose to live in New York because New York as you know, brilliant as all the financiers are, it's basically a, it's a conforming machine. Mm-hmm. And what passes for innovation on wall street, what passes for really good investments on wall street is typically, you know, a more complicated financing structure. <laughs> well, I don't know. That doesn't inspire me. Um, and you know, in, in hindsight, we have really benefited from an operating margin perspective by having a lot of our fixed costs in Boise. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the cost structure in Boise is much lower than it would be in Seattle or San Francisco or New York. Um, True. and so we've got our compliance team and our reporting team. Um, several of the partners are here. So our, our, our the bulk of our fixed overhead relative to personnel is, is in Boise, which has been fantastic. Um, from an operating perspective. And I think that it also, it's also provided an unexpected and really effective sort of sociological screen for our clients. Because if somebody discovers that we have um, sort of headquarters in Boise and most of our public facing work is done on the West coast and they really want to be with a sort of a sexy wall street firm, well then they're not going to talk with us and it saves everybody a lot of time. Um, right. On the flip side, if somebody's really, really intrigued by the fact that we're located in Boise, well, that says something about them as humans. Mm-hmm. Like they're curious people. They're intrigued by our decision. And if that's who they are by temperament, then there's a much higher probability that we're going to be a good firm for them. That doesn't mean they're going to hire us. But the simple fact that they're looking at us and saying, huh, Boise, that's interesting. Why? That tells you more about them than it does about us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's really that's a really good point. <laughs> well, I mean, you're also you're also super involved in philanthropic endeavors. You're uh, you helped launch the Lee Pesky Learning Center, which is all about learning disabilities. You're uh, you work with the Edwards Mother Earth Foundation, and even shepherded legislation through the Idaho Legislature for <laughs> benefit corporation legal status. So, your interests are wide ranging, and and I we haven't even gotten to the uh, competing internationally in five sports <laughs> thing, which I'd love to touch on too. But in, in terms of philanthropy, what are your views on the role of of philanthropy versus capital markets? Yeah, versus government even. Yeah, I've. Um I've actually 
spoken and written a fair amount about this and have been in some pretty heated conversations with, with some of my colleagues around this, but there, there will always be a role for philanthropic capital, always. And I think the, the sort of parallel recognition is that it's a scarce commodity. Like there's not a lot of philanthropic capital. And so I think that we as a philanthropic community, as an, as an investment community, have a responsibility to identify commercializable actions, activities that are hidden in these nonprofits and to do our best to commercialize them so as to introduce sustainable business models inside of nonprofits. Now that doesn't mean that all nonprofits are gonna have that. Some aren't. I mean, the, the Pesky Center, as an example, you know, when I was a chairman of the board several years ago, I, I sort of challenged the incoming executive director and the board to think about ways to Rubik's Cube our, every single thing that we did so that we could be self-sustaining from a financial perspective. That was a challenge. I didn't know if it was even possible. But along the way, we, we interrogated our premise, our, our presumptions around the validity of serving individual clients versus serving clients in a group versus teaching, teaching teachers. We interrogated our relationship with, with, a, with a university and we asked whether or not we could become a research institute. We interrogated our relationship with getting contracts rather than individual donations. And in the process of basically looking at every single facet of our business, our funding gap, i.e. the amount of income that we needed that was derived from donations and grants, went from a million dollars a year to about $150,000 a year over the course of five years. Hmm. So by doing that, I think we started to manifest this idea of impact investing within, within a, uh, within a nonprofit. Hmm. And I think that, that like, if I were like, in, if I were in charge of the free world, <laughs> <laughs> I would sort of have that framework and offer it to every single nonprofit. And some of them will never be commercially viable. Some of them simply hmm. don't do anything that has a revenue stream attached to it. Sure. They might provide incredibly essential services. Okay. Those are the nonprofits to which the philanthropic capital should be directed. But a lot of these other ones, they just got started as nonprofits because the people who started them didn't think about starting them as a business <laughs> or they didn't want to, or they wanted, you know, who knows why. But um, I mean, here's a really good example. I was, I was asked to sort of opine. I, I was going to use the word consult, but you're a consultant, so I don't want to put myself at the same <laughs> level. Um, an organization in Southeast Asia that was providing potable water to highly urbanized areas in cities in Southeast Asia. Nonprofit. They're doing a fantastic job but they were capacity constrained to delivering more services because they couldn't raise any more money. It sort of tapped out all the, the channels that they could find. So they asked me to come in and sort of help them think through how they might reorient their business model. And what was really clear to me is their sunk costs were in hardware. They had these filtration systems that were in schools for the children to drink potable water. Well, the assets were totally idle all afternoon and evening. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, why not think about finding an entrepreneur who'd be willing to come in and run the machines in the evening so that the community could come in and buy water at you know, a heavily discounted rate. Right. They're like, oh my God, we never thought about that. You know, it's just, they never thought about that. And, and, and you know, that's just like one little tiny example of how you can look at assets and potential revenues and how you're working with the community and, um, and just, yeah, just sort of think differently about it. So, yeah, I think it will always be a role for philanthropy. Similarly, this, like, bizarre perspective 
that was introduced during the beginning of the Reagan area that the government is the enemy and that deregulation is the only thing that needs to happen. Like, I don't understand that. Like, the government will absolutely continue to serve a role of ensuring a level playing field. Like, the rules-based environment that a government ensures is so critical to the way we all function. Mm -hmm. I, don't know, I don't know if you've heard Michael Lewis's um, serialized most recent book. Um, no, I've, I've had several people mention it. It's uh, actually on my list to read. So I think he's got three chapters out so far. And I can't remember the title of it, but it's basically the, the elimination of the referee in our society. Mm -hmm. And it's brilliant. And it's exactly right. It's like, that's what the government does. The government's the referee. Mm -hmm. And you can disagree with the ref's calls, for sure. But it's better to be playing with the referee than not. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, uh, yeah, I think there is a role for government. I agree with you. So, well, the, the, before we get to the, the rapid round of questions to, uh, to wrap up the interview, I, I did want to ask you about, you know, how do you keep yourself going in all the various things that you're doing in terms of uh, just having the energy to do all these things? I mean, I, as I mentioned, you compete, you've competed in multiple sports you have a love of adventure and the outdoors and uh, is that an important aspect are there other things that you do oh ursula i'm a, <laughs> i'm an omnivore i mean i um I, well, I don't watch television hardly ever that's a big one <laughs> um, right. i don't know my I, I i find the opposite is is the challenge i don't have enough time to do everything i want to do um, mm -hmm. I am, um, yeah, I mean, I eat really well, I don't smoke, I don't drink very much, um, I exercise a lot, I don't know, I just, I'm, I'm, let me say it differently, I find this world endlessly engaging and inspiring, and so for me, it's never a question of, do I get motivated, or do I, do I, am I lacking energy, um, but I'm also really, really privileged, right, I'm privileged to have partners who, um, who support me, basically. I'm privileged to work with some of the most innovative clients in the world who are willing to explore this idea of impact investing with me. I'm, willing, I'm, I'm privileged enough to thought partner with some of the most interesting pools of capital in the world. I'm privileged to be challenging this monolith called capitalism and to be doing it in a way that feels aligned with the future. Like these are all like profoundly privileged realities. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not obligated to go to work every day in a job that I hate, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not obligated to deal with relationships that make me shiver when I have to pick up the phone. Yeah. You know, and, and I, and I recognize that. And that's, that's a, that's a, a place of, as I said, sort of profound privilege and the gratitude that I feel for that is, it's, it's pervasive and mm. I've worked really, really, really hard to be here. Yeah. Yeah, you've created that situation. So yeah, and and yeah. and I can't in any way say that there was this master plan 20 years ago. It was continuing to you know it's that Joseph Campbell thing, right? Follow your passion, follow your bliss. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I went to my first SRI in the Rockies conference, there was one person there who totally inspired me, Julie Brown, who was the head of ESG research at UBS, and I just sent her a letter and I said, "Oh my God, you're so inspiring!" And like from that came three other people to talk to and from that came six other people to talk to and from that came a group that I volunteered for and from that I came at the, and it was like and it just sort of spooled and then suddenly here I am doing stuff that's totally fascinating 
and yeah. rewarding and intellectually stimulating and professionally gratifying. And wow, how cool is that? Yeah. And your curiosity and enthusiasm are just great, Matthew. I, I, uh, I feel energized just talking to you. So I, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can imagine. Well, well, the, the, uh, as I mentioned, I always wrap up these interviews with a rapid round of three questions. Are you game? Yes, with trepidation. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Intentionality matters. Yeah, intentionality matters because it's hard. Um, there, there is this sort of constant whispering in your ear in all of our ears, that there, there has to be a trade-off. There has to be some notional trade-off. If you want to build a mission-driven business, you're going to sacrifice financial performance, or it's going to be harder to raise money, or it's going to be harder to get clients, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those might be true. Situationally, they might be absolutely true. Um, from a um, chronological perspective, that might be true. Like, and I'm not, I'm not going to just dis- dismiss all of that. But if you don't have that intentionality, the chances are that you'll be knocked off course. Mm-hmm. and then you won't have the impact you have. And the other part is, sort of related to that, I think um, the business has to be profitable, right? In order to be sustainable, it has to be profitable. What you do with those profits determines the depth of your social mission. But I think intentionality really matters. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Well, the second question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Volunteered. Just stepped <laughs> forward. I think that, um, you know, I talk to a lot of people, under, understandably, and it's really, really cool. I don't mean to say this in a self-aggrandizing um, way, but I talk to a lot of people who are mid-career financial professionals who want to do something that has more meaning to them. They're experienced professionals, they're on the capital market side, or they're on the wealth you know, advisory side, and they want to work in impact. But they don't want to sort of do what's necessary to get there, right? And impact is still pretty small. There's not a lot of absorbed professional absorptive capacity in the impact investing ecosystem. And the number of times I've talked to people, and I know how, I know how arrogant and patronizing this sounds, and I apologize in advance for it. But the number of people I've talked to have said, well, you know, I'm making, you know, $700,000 here now. And I, I pretty much feel like I need to make that much again. Like, and I, do you, like I just want to like step into an impact job. <laughs> it's like, well, like, have you been to any conferences? Well, no, not yet. Well, have you read books? Well, what books would you recommend? I'm like, do the work, man. Like yeah. step forward into this community. Like it's, it's what I think a lot of people don't understand is that this is not a new field. This field has been um, incubated over 25, 30 years. By people volunteering By, to some extent. Totally. Yeah. By yeah. people volunteering to develop the SROI um, calculation. By people volunteering with, you know, effectively volunteering with very early stage philanthropic venture, you know, venture philanthropy in the, in the Bay Area. That was experiments. And these guys were running, you know, $10 million funds. They weren't getting yeah. paid on a $10 million mm-hmm. venture fund. They were barely keeping the lights open. I think it can be hard for mid-career people to look at things in that way because you're used yeah. to a certain level of income. Your expectations are there. It's some, in some way an affirmation of your expertise and knowledge. And, and at the same time, it's a new realm and has to be approached differently. So I, I appreciate you advocating for um, 
opportunities to become part of it that don't necessarily immediately involve a financial return. Yep. So, yeah. step, step forward, demonstrate your passion, demonstrate your interest. And I God, again, it sounds so patronizing and I, I hate that, but I also can't quite get away from it because, you know, just like intentionality matters, credibility matters as well. And credibility right now in this space, you know, maybe in 10 or 15 years, it will change. But credibility right now is a, um, it is earned through participation, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, and the last question is really around um, any insight or what piece of advice would you offer somebody, another business owner is saying, I want to have more impact. I want to contribute more. What would you say to them? Hmm. Um, this is going to be a bit of an odd one. I would say make sure that the impact that you want to have is operationally material. Hmm. You know, too often I have seen entrepreneurs and even worse foundations or investors um, want to either start a business on the entrepreneur's case or invest in a business um, on the foundations or investor side where the intended impact is ancillary to the operations of the business. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge mistake. And I get it from a values perspective. Like if you um, sort of going back to that water, um, example if you're really 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 interested in gender equality then you can start a business that only hires women entrepreneurs right Mm -hmm. totally get that and that would be ancillary to the core business the core business being delivering potable water Mm -hmm. and so if you were to be made if you were to find yourself hiring inexperienced women entrepreneurs and didn't have the cultural fluency to develop a training program for them, you're setting them up for failure. Even though you would be advancing this personal, important, critical mission around gender equality and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's slippery, but I think that, like, be ruthless with with yourself. Be ruthless in your self-assessment on what is operationally relevant and what is just simply important to you as a human. And you can still pursue yeah. those other impacts, but like make sure that the impact that you want, that you're having is linked to the operations of the business. Mm-hmm. So otherwise when it really, when push really comes to shove and every business goes through that moment, either in startup because they're undercapitalized or as they're scaling and they don't have the resources necessarily to meet the growth demand. Um, every business goes through that moment. And if the, if the impact is not operationally linked, then you will, then you will fail mm-hmm. in that impact. Yeah. Well, that is great advice, Matthew. And I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, I feel like I've learned a lot more about this movement that I feel so connected with and, and part of. And uh, I really appreciate your thoughtful curiosity around so many ways that we can engage in really fruitful conversation around that. So thank you for sharing all of that today. It's a real pleasure to speak with someone who has is informed and is as curious and is as professional (laughs) as you are. Yeah, it's been a delightful conversation. Great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did too. So if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Um, Well, you can throw yourself upon the mercy of my inbox. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I'll just be, you know, candid. It's like I'm not, I do my best to keep up with email flow, but it's, it just sometimes doesn't happen. And so that's Matthew at caprock.com. You can also send me a direct message in Twitter, um, which is my handle is, you know, at I3Impact. 
And I do check LinkedIn periodically, and you can just find me in LinkedIn. Um, so those are three ways to get me. I almost never answer my phone, so that's not going to work. And I'm not going to give out my personal phone anyway. Um, right. But yeah, my email at work is one that's probably best, followed by Twitter, followed by LinkedIn. Okay, great. Well, thank you for the work you're doing in the world, Matthew. And the same to you, Ursula. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.